Welcome back to another episode of Inside College Admissions. My name is Aaron Barnes, and I'm the Content Marketing Manager at SCORE. Today, we're joined by Peter Van Buskirk, former Dean of Admission at Franklin and Marshall College, a strategic advisor at SCORE, and a regular guest and host on our podcast. We're going to have a conversation about the landscape of college testing, its history, present circumstances, and where testing fits into the future of college admission. We're excited to feature Peter on our podcast and are thrilled to share our conversation with you. College entrance testing has been in the news a lot lately. It would appear that there are major changes taking place with regard to the role of testing in the admission process. But before we get into those changes, Peter, what can you tell us about how we got to this place in time? Well, it depends on how much time you have. Uh, we, can, we can really look back in, in time. But the, the whole idea of college entrance testing started uh, over 100 years ago. Uh, actually, it would have been literally in about 1900 when it, it seemed like some leading institutions were looking for a metric to use that uh, would enable them to assess whether students across different high school backgrounds would be prepared for, for college at their particular schools. And, and over time, there were different types of, of entrance examinations ranging from IQ tests to a test that the Army had developed for officer placement and training that, that was adapted for college placement. And then the test that became the SAT was actually used initially, this is in the 1940s, as a, a scholarship examination institutions used. But the, the concept of the SAT roughly as we know it now, really began to emerge in the 1950s, 1960s as a test that was designed to help college admission officers predict the, the uh, success of students in the first year of college. So I, I mentioned this to point out that college entrance testing over time has had an evolving look as the, the rubric has changed to, to meet the times. And now it's not an intelligence test now. It's not a subject test right now, but, but it's, it's designed to, as a, a reasoning and logic test, help colleges understand where students are and their readiness for college. So given all of the context that you just provided, what exactly is the current role of testing in the admission process today? Well, today, testing really has a primary function as helping admission officers as, as one of the variables that is provided on behalf of a student, but helping admission officers to understand the potential of a student to do the work academically in the first year of college. And that's really it. It's, it's not predicting who's going to graduate from college. It's not predicting what your GPA is going to be in college but is simply providing some metric that helps give admission officers more confidence in, in looking at candidates to make the decision that yes, the student can do the work. Now, at some institutions, the, the role of the testing has become a little more expanded because uh, of the volume of candidates. State universities, for example, that, that have a, a great number of candidates and are more objective in their selection process will, will use a, a very basic formula that involves a test result and maybe a GPA to determine who's going to make a, an initial cut in the selection process. Or similarly, some of the, the uber-selective institutions will do the same thing uh, with their indices to determine which of the candidates will move to the next round of consideration. But the basic role of the test is to help us understand whether students can do the, the job uh, in, in college when they get into the classroom. So it sounds like for a very long time that testing has been the bedrock of the college admission process. That being said, why does it seem that so many colleges are making the submission of tests optional? 
Well, it, it's a good question, Aaron, because one of the things that we've discovered over time is that despite the, if you will, the purer intent of the test, there have been inherent biases in the test, gender biases, racial biases in, in the way that the questions are formed that have a bearing on, on who will do well or who will not do as well in performance on the test. So that's one of the reasons why there's it's a constant evaluation among the test makers as to how the test is constructed and the content that's in the test, et cetera. In the 1980s, some schools began to take a step back and say, hey, do we really need the test? Uh, and, and at that time, they were doing things with validity studies to try to predict the, 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 the role of testing in determining whether students can be successful. And, and they were starting to ask questions about, you know, how important is this test? But as early as the 1980s, schools like Bates College up in Maine decided that maybe they didn't really need testing. They could make good decisions about whom to admit without having students submit to, to a standardized test. So, uh, you know, initially they experimented with an admission process absent any test results and found that indeed they could move forward with, without the tests and, and make good decisions. So the, the birth of test option, and we, we now know that there are many more colleges and universities that are test optional, but the birth of test option really grew out of that time period with Bates and Bowdoin, some other schools in the Northeast, trying to, to see whether they could function well in a, in a test-less environment. I was at Franklin and Marshall College in 1989 when we decided to try the test option. And uh, frankly, I would just say that the experience as an admission officer at that time with the test optional environment was liberating. It was, it was actually a lot of fun to be able to look at candidates without having to, to imagine how their test results would have an impact on the profile of information we provided to the public. We could look at young people, not numbers. And, and, and really that was, that was quite meaningful for us. And, and uh, again, that was almost 40 years ago and the, the test option is still in place at Franklin and Marshall. So Peter, wasn't it a bit risky to drop the submission of tests when they were designed to predict success? Well, that, that's a good observation. Uh, and I know that when, when we had that debate on, on our campus, the, the, the faculty were the ones that, that really uh, researched the possibility of uh, going test optional. And, and the faculty were initially quite reluctant to, to drop a test, something that had been part of the, the decision-making rubric at the institution. For, for many years. And then finally, when the conversation provided data and uh, analysis that said you could do a good job without the test, uh, some of the faculty started to catcall the process and say, you know, why, why don't you just go ahead and, and make it completely optional? See, at that time, we were going to make the test optional for students in the top 10% of their class rather than making it optional for all students. And, and so the, the, once the faculty realized that it was really possible to make good decisions about whom to admit without the test, they wanted to embrace it even further. But taking that initial step away from the security blanket of the test was a difficult and awkward step for, for many institutions. And I know that we felt that awkwardness until we actually were immersed in the process without tests and it was actually working well for us and it was a lot of fun. Are you surprised at all that so many colleges have become test optional over the last year? Well, the last year has really been a different sort of circumstance. And before I respond specifically to that, let me add that since the 1980s, when some schools began to experiment with test option, that by January of 2020, this is pre-COVID, 
there were at least a thousand colleges and universities around the country that had become test optional in some way. So the, the, the movement toward test option has been rather substantial. And when you consider that there are roughly 3,000 of the traditional bricks and mortar colleges and universities around the country, a third of them now, fully a third prior to COVID, had engaged in some degree of test option, test blind activity. With COVID, however, many institutions, including the very selective institutions that had relied on testing as part of the filtering mechanism, if you will, the index that, that they would use to, to determine who would make the first, the second cut, et cetera, in their selection process, many of those institutions felt that it was not fair to students to insist that they submit credentials for which they couldn't have access. In other words, there are a lot of kids who were preparing to apply for admission in the last year who simply couldn't get to test centers. And normally a student might have taken an SAT or an ACT two or three times during the course of getting ready for the college application. Well, now they might have one test, uh, and if that. And so institutions were saying what we need to do is, is take a step back from the test and, and not penalize students for, for not being able to take the test. Let's, let's make the test optional for this year on an experimental basis. And I, I found it fascinating the way a lot of institutions frame this. You know, we're gonna experiment with the test option this year because it's really not fair to insist that students submit tests that they couldn't have taken. So um, that number of test optional schools grew from 1,000 12 months ago to 1,600 now. So fully half of the uh, colleges and universities, including most of the very highly selective institutions are in at least an experimental mode with test option this year. And how do you think the test option is affecting the credential review process at those highly selective institutions? That's a really good question. It's, it's certainly a challenge, and I think that there's an unexpected consequence of that decision by some of, say, Ivy League institutions and other very highly selective institutions to go test optional. Now there are a lot of students who may not have applied because they knew that their scores were not in a range for those institutions who are saying, oh, what the heck, I'm going to give it a shot. And many of those places, places that were already seeing an admit rate of, of one out of 15, one out of 20 have increases in applications of 40 to 50% this year. So it's just getting absolutely insane at those schools. And I mentioned that because you ask, how does that affect the decision-making process? Well, the, the sheer volume of candidates this year is just overwhelming. It's a big tsunami that's overwhelming many institutions. That said, they're committed to making decisions without test results which means that they have to change the way they look at the candidate. And, and rather than relying on objective data for uh, making some preliminary cuts, they're, they're looking more at the subjective information. They'll always rely first on the academic record. They'll, they'll always rely first on the, the rigor of the program a student has, has been taking through high school, through the senior year of high school, and the performance of the student in that program. And so to the extent that students do well, but not extremely well, maybe at an Ivy League school, that's the point of discrimination. But the academic record is the first place. But, but now there's much more sensitivity, let's say, to the subjective elements of that application. And, and I would enter this thought for anyone who's listening. Those schools that are extremely selective are trying to discern 
the sense of purpose that a student brings into the process. In other words, are you applying to our school simply because we are who we are and you want to see if you can get in or because you have an understanding of what you want to accomplish and you have found in our program uh, something that's really going to meet your needs. So the student's ability to express that purpose and prove the synergy between the student and the institution uh, is, is something that's coming into play more and more at those schools as well. And to add even more change to upcoming application cycles, it seems that the educational testing service is removing some other tools that have been used in selective admission. What is behind the decision to drop the offering of SAT subject tests? The SAT subject tests have been around for a long time, probably I'm going to say 50 to 60 years. I think many parents would recognize them not as subject tests, but achievement tests, the SAT achievement tests. Many of the, the tests have been used over time by schools that are trying to effectively create another filter on determining the readiness of students to perform in highly specialized environments or highly competitive environments. Uh, but increasingly, uh, selective institutions have backed off of insisting that students take the subject tests simply to take them as another credential. And even the schools that, that have the more sophisticated specialized programs like engineering or even in, in the arts, for example, where the, or languages where the, the, the subject test can provide a particular insight into a student's level of proficiency, there's, there's less reliance on the, the subject test there as well. So bottom line is it's a business move. The, the educational testing service is finding that the, there's just not enough demand for the use of the subject tests. And they're expensive to develop, expensive to administer. They're just saying, hey, you know, if, if, if these tests aren't being used very widely, uh, why do we need to bother? And what of the decision to drop the optional essay as well? Uh, similar. Uh, the essay was introduced into the, the SAT about 10 years ago. It was initially an optional part of, of the, the SAT experience and then became a, a mandatory part. But again, what happened with the essay, a couple of things. One, the segment itself, the, the test segment itself uh, was, was difficult to put together so that it would, would really glean from the student some sense of the student's communication skills. In other words, what, what we found is that a lot of students were, were trying to figure out, the, if you will, the formula for scoring on that test and, and would respond to essay prompts more to beat the formula than, than to write anything thoughtful. And there are stories of students who, who wrote gibberish, basically, in their, their essays, but still scored well because of the form in which they presented their gibberish. Admission officers just, I think, found that to, to be not terribly helpful at all. So the essay portion of the SAT was a stressful thing for students. It was something else that they tried to, to, to prep for and, and be, be ready. And, and, and frankly, again, they, they took a in my opinion, a wrong turn in terms of that preparation. So that again, they were they were focusing more on the, the, the presentation of uh, technical skills rather than presentation of thoughtful analysis. And again, as a result, colleges just decided increasingly that it was not the the optional essay. Now optional was no longer a, a terribly useful part of the selection process. Well, Peter, we've touched on the history of testing and the present state of testing as it relates to college admission. But I'm curious to get your thoughts on the future of testing in college admission. Well, I think there, there are some who would see 
that these developments, the test option, the dropping of these uh, subject tests, dropping of the optional essay, are sort of ringing the, the death knell of testing in terms of a college entrance examination process. Uh, I don't know if we could go quite that far right now, but it's clearly there's a sea change here taking place. And I think that the next 12 months will tell us an awful lot. If the, if the institutions that have experimented, decided to experiment with the test option, come out of this period feeling comfortable with their new paradigm, then I think that we're, we're likely to find a, a further decline in the, in the use of testing both the SAT and the ACT at colleges and universities. It's worth noting also that one of the functions of the SAT and the ACT to a certain extent is that some states will use these tests as assessment examinations for students as they, they leave high school. That's a big part of the business model for the college board and for the ACT. There's some speculation that there could be a further retrenchment of testing in, in the future. I think that said, there are going to be institutions, particularly state universities, that are going to rely on, on, the, on some form of testing into the future simply because of the volume of candidates and, and the historic nature of their review process, a more objective review process rather than holistic. Holistic being we look at everything objective, we look at the numbers. So I think that, that state universities are probably going to continue to rely on some form of testing and some scholarship programs are going to rely on some form of testing as well. Yeah, to say that we've seen a lot of change this year might be a, a massive understatement. Peter, I know previously in some prior conversations, you've compared the college admissions landscape to, forgive me, I'm paraphrasing, you've compared it to a glacier yeah. uh, moving, moving at a glacial pace, but things are certainly moving quicker than they have in, in my lifetime for sure, and I'm sure in your professional experience. You're right. There's always a tendency, I think, in any organization to view change reluctantly. Mm -hmm. and higher education, there's always been a sense, continues to be a sense of, well, we always did it this way. So why do we need to consider making changes? You know, if it works, why fix it? That's the, the metaphor reference then to the glacier. I mean, the change just is a glacial function on a college or university campus. Well, because of COVID in particular, the glacier has been reduced to a puddle. Mm -hmm. And there's been a lot of forced change just in order to, to, for institutions to pivot effectively and continue to provide meaningful educational opportunities for young people. But also, as we're discussing here, pivot to be able to make access reasonable for, for students in, at a time when some of the traditional elements of the selection process have not been available. Of course. Well, Peter, I appreciate you taking some time to speak with us today. We hope this conversation can be insightful for students and families who are coming up on the college admission process. If you liked today's episode, be sure to give us a subscribe and share it with your friends and family. And uh, Peter, we look forward to having future conversations with you. That'd be great. Thank you very much, Aaron. Thank you. Thank you.